Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rick Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to finance and investment professionals about their investment journeys and why they chose a career in managing other people's money. The idea is to find a few tips and tricks to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Asif Mohammed. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Aon Investment Management. He founded the company in 2005. He is a chartered accountant and a chartered financial analyst. He has been in the asset management industry for more than 30 years. Asif, thank you so much for your time today. First of all, give us a bit of background. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to investments? Yes, I grew up in the Cape Flats in Cape Town and the first bit of investment is an uncle of mine. He dabbled in shares, but as far as I can remember, he lost money. He didn't make any money. My next experience with shares is I got to work for Arthur Young, did my articles as a chartered accountant, and I bought a share on a tip from one of my colleagues working at Arthur Young then. And it was a share by the name of Lef Kochrisos. I don't know if you know the Lucas Perulis family, the Perulis family. They owned that mine or controlled that mine then, PGM Platinum Mine. And I invested on, on a tip, if you might call it that. You know, I invested 2,000 Rand then. My salary per month was 600 Rand per month. So it's three months' salary. And that was my first, you know, um, investment. And I lost it all. And as they say, you know, it's very expensive school school fees, but the best school fees I've ever paid. And I've learned not to buy a shea on a tip at all. So that was my first foray into investments. How old were you when you did that? I was about 23 years old or 24 years old then. Yes, yes. That was the first time, but nevertheless, a very good experience and a very good learning experience. And the next time again is how I got into the industry in the investment industry through the back door, not through the front door, as I call it. I came back from working for Arthur Young in London after two years working for them there. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? And I saw this property analyst job advertised as one of the big three asset managers in Cape Town today. That was Metropolitan. No, no, it wasn't Metropolitan. It was actually Alan Gray. Uh And I went for an interview and I was gathering the top three of candidates, but I wasn't accepted. The reason why property analysts is because my mother, my late mother, she had to bring us up and she worked you know, making stuff at home, like samosas and stuff like that. And papa, as some people would say also, and we used to sell it for her. But one thing she did was actually buy up the first property we lived in and rented out the front and the back. And the property rental income actually saved us. And I thought, you know, my mother went into that. It's probably a good thing. Maybe I should learn about property investments and become a property tycoon. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the job, but nevertheless, I then joined Metropolitan Venture Capital thought that this thing that they started then didn't work out after a year or so. And I told them it's not going to work because they weren't doing proper venture capital techniques. They were funding all the money. The entrepreneur wasn't on the line at all. I know this was a disaster. 
But nevertheless, then I closed it up. And then because they didn't have anything for me to do, and they asked me what I wanted to do. So I says, I really want to go into investments, which I really only discovered that industry around then when I when I came back to Cape Town. I didn't know it existed. And then I joined the investments division and did a chartered financial analyst program. I'm going to interrupt you there. Why in the investment world? Why investments? Because it is a very niche area for a CA to pursue. There are many, many other options which I imagine laid at your feet at that time. Yes, but it was accounting, you know, to do accounting and I didn't really want to be what I call then a pack pusher. You know, every month you produce accounting packs, you know, for a company and it's looking at history all the time. I effectively stumbled across the industry and I thought this is quite interesting. It's forward looking and that's how I then if I might call it then, through the back door, came into Metropolitan, you know, then the investments division then to actually start researching shares, to investing in the stock market. And I thought, you know, it could potentially make a lot of money for Metropolitan then and also for its clients then. They were largely managing money for the internal life funds, not really for external money then. But as I said, the interest was really forward-looking because history unfolds, if you might call it that. Markets are, you know, takes into account what's going to happen. You try and predict the future. And it was very exciting, interestingly, at that point in time. It wasn't actually because of the money you were going to earn. I certainly didn't earn a lot then, but it was more the interest in looking forward. Yeah. That's an interesting choice, and it shaped your whole career. We're going to talk about Aeon a bit later, because you went on your own. You started your own asset management business. But... After you've made the mistake by believing a tip and investing based on a tip, and it is very, very dangerous to do so, how did your investment approach change? And what did you do to become more successful as an investor? And I'm talking here in your personal capacity. That was the first share I bought. And subsequent with that, I didn't buy any shares or sell any shares for that matter, other than selling you know, whatever I had left for a minimal amount of money. And then only when I came to Metropolitan, then, you know, then I would have, you know, started investing. And and at that stage, I was quite young, relatively young. So you tend to look for shares you think that you can make 10 or 20 times your money and you always dream about it. And again, I mean, I made another mistake. You know, some of the colleagues were interested. The shares going to do well, Bengula concessions, diamond mining on the West Coast, probably even do better than De Beers because there's a lot of diamonds under the sea. And I also put a lot of money in. And again, that didn't work out. In that case, I did research. I need to emphasize that the mistakes I made was actually a good learning ground for making sure that, you know, what you invest in, you invest in solid companies, that that's good growth prospects, that's quality management that you can trust. And that's key. That's how I developed my investment, if you might call it philosophy then. And also, as I did the Chartered Financial and Qualification right from the beginning, I realized that, you know, share prices tell you a lot. It tells you what's priced into in terms of earning expectations. And I built my investment philosophy and career on that. And it's helped us as a firm, both at Metropolitan and here, a lot in terms of adding value to clients and making money for clients. I think we're one of the few investment management firms that can say that we beat our benchmarks after fees. As you know, the asset management industry does on average not do that. Probably maybe 30% of asset managers do that. If you look at the longer period of time, it's even less so. But nevertheless, we can probably say that we've actually added value to our clients over long periods of time. So how do you value a 
share an investment opportunity because most professional investors achieve a hit and miss ratio of six winners versus four losers. That seems to be a benchmark. What is your approach and why is it different? You're right, but I need to say that if you get six out of ten right, you're doing actually very well exceptionally well, I'll be honest with you, or you are going to get something wrong. And we hope to actually get better than that. However, I would say that most professional investors, fund managers globally achieve significantly less than that, maybe three in 10. That's why they don't add value after fees. And that's the global studies you've seen it all over the world. We try and, if you might call it, increase the odds of getting much better outcomes. And as I said, you know, we look at what's implied in share prices in terms of earnings growth over the next five years. And we can work that out by using the reverse of what called the dividend discount model. And we can work that out. So what we then do, we do fundamental analysis as a firm and we say, okay, will this, you know, company grow more than what's implied in earnings per share growth over the next five years? If so, yes. And we kick the tires. We you know, do the fundamental research extensively. And if we're happy with that, then we would buy the specific share. If it's negative, the gap is negative, we obviously don't hold this share or we sell this share if if we did hold it. I probably want to go back to a longer history example, which a lot of people will be familiar with, is dimension data. I don't know if I'm sure you're familiar with dimension data. Yes, I know dimension data very, very well. I bought it in the late 90s based on a tip and I really, really got burned. We liked it in the early years at the lower levels. We hold it on all, you know, our client portfolios in at Metropolitan Asset Managers, added a bucket load of value over a period of time. However, when they bought Comprex, if I remember, there, and a year or two later, when that happened, we thought they overpaid and the share price was about 60 or 70 rand. We then, I mean, certainly I initiated the sale of a third of our holdings in Dai Data then. It was close to the top because I thought, you know, overpaying for an acquisition is actually going to, you know, set them back. And we were right. The only regret that I have then was not selling all of it on behalf of, of our clients then, Dai Data shares, because as you know, it went down to as low as two rand then at that point in time. Now, for those who haven't heard of Dimension Data, it was the darling of the JSE in the late 1990s. And I think it listed at two rand. It went up to, if I remember correctly, close to 100 rand within a few years. And then it came crashing down back to two rand after the dot-com bubble burst. And I think a lot of people lost a lot of money. I get a lot of phone calls from young professionals, 23, 24 year old. They've just started the job. They earn an income. They contribute to their pension fund. But then they also would like to invest through a discretionary portfolio. Number one, to learn how the investment world works. And number two, to also build a portfolio. How do you think those individuals should approach it? So when we recruit people, we look for people who have the Chartered and Financial Analyst qualification just to make sure that they've got the technical abilities and they can actually do that. However, I must stress the fact that you've got the CFA qualification doesn't make you a good professional investor at all. That's the key thing. I also need to bring to your listeners' attention the element of luck, you know, being at the right place at the right time also. There's a difference between skill and luck. And if I were to advise an individual investor, I'd probably say, you know, the money you invest, buy what you believe to be quality companies, don't buy on a tip. 
and then you buy for the long term because us as professional investments, certainly at the firm at Union Investment Management, we take a five-year view, we take a 10-year view, and our portfolio turnover is exceptionally low relative to a lot of other fund managers. It's less than 10%. So we try not to trade the portfolio. And if we don't trust management, you know, we can give you another example. More than 12 years before Steinhoff went bust, somebody told me before another radio show, he told me in front of the other presenter, he said to the presenter, he would not invest in Steinhoff and says, why not? No, he went to school with Marcus Yester. You know, I think it's one of the schools in Pretoria High Schools. And he said that he would not. And I asked him why. And he gave me an answer, which I'll not repeat here on the phone. For 10 or 12 years, we weren't invested at all in Steinhoff because what we believe the trust and the government's issue was. And there were other issues also, fundamental valuation didn't stack up, the return on invested capital was coming down, low tax rate, there was a litigation with a German investor, and we weren't invested. But it took us a 10 years of pain and then one month of glory, you know, before we were proven right. So you have to have that discipline to stay out of things that you're worried about. But Steinhoff had a fantastic board. I think there were seven or eight CAs on the board, previous bankers, Johan van Seil, ex-CEO of Sunlum, Steve Boyson, ex-CEO of APSA, Len Kona was there, and many people invested just because the board had such credible individuals on it. And as you've said, you know, one of the measures or the metrics you can use to take investment decisions is to look at the quality of the board. So it doesn't always work. You're right, you know, and that's what I said about the charter financial and less qualification. The fact that you've got it doesn't mean that you're a good investor at all. That's what I'm saying to you. And similarly, if you've got a master's in finance or your doctorate in this and that, doesn't give you the ability to necessarily you know, discover fraud or discover, you know, financial statements that doesn't stack up or whatever the case might be. You're right about that. And you need a dose of healthy skepticism. Unfortunately, in the case of Steinhoff, you could see that Marcus Houston, you know, and his team was all about wooing investors, you know. When they had endless presentations, they choreographed it very well. You know, they would say XYZ from, you know, the significant big asset managers stand up, they are shareholding us and then you feel like a fool, you're not invested, you know, because the smart guys are invested, so-called smart guys. And they also got caught big time, you know, there. And then also they never allowed questions after their presentations. And it was it really expensive venues, expensive liquor, you know, that they served and all of those things. And they really wooed a lot of people and people got caught in that. And unfortunately, you know, you've got to be independent. You've got to think independently. Sometimes your gut works for you. If you feel uncomfortable about the trust issues, then stay away. Yeah, and it's very difficult to also spot dishonesty. Mm. Let's talk about your best and worst investments ever. You've referred to a few poor investments you have made. Let's talk about your best investment ever. What investment do you think has been really a good one, which actually yielded a massive return for you? It was when I left Metropolitan, you know, so I had to leave Metropolitan because they were about to fire me, which they couldn't. I actually saw six months before that they wanted to fire me because the CEO sent an email to my immediate boss to say, when are you going to fire him because of poor performance over that two-year period, which was a short period of time, nevertheless. And then I realized that's what's happening. He sent it to be my mistake, you know, but they couldn't find me. But I said, okay, two years before then, I said, you know, the best thing I can do is I get fired, get off my back, so I don't do my own thing. 
And that, in a sense, actually happened. But then I left Metropolitan Asset Managers on negotiated terms, which I thought was very favorable to me. But in that December 2004, as I was reading the Business Day newspaper, it was a big announcement about, you know, the restructuring of MGX, which is now Metrofile. You know, the share price was pummeled from 40 or 50 rand down to about 13 or 10 cents of shares went down there. Lots of debt. They bought companies and then there was a restructuring announcement and I looked at this and as I stood up, I looked outside the window and there I saw a Metrofile van going past. Then there's the store boxes and all of those things. And I said to myself, this could be an interesting investment. I was also leaving Metropolitan, so I couldn't invest on behalf of Metropolitan. It was quite small. And then I then bought on the stock exchange quite a lot of shares, 8 million shares, 8.5 million shares on an average price of about 10 cents a share. And I bought it. But I did my research, by the way. I actually looked at the financials and all of those things. Interestingly, I also went to a couple of other companies and I saw that they used Metrofile boxes there to store their documents. And that was quite interesting that I saw it. Suddenly started noticing it. It went as high as nearly five rand. Today, it's three rand. I still hold all the shares. So I've done exceptionally well out of it then. But it was essentially, if you might call it a listed leverage buyout. There was risk there if you might call it a calculated risk in investing in that. And it's worked out very well. So that's been a great, great investment. The other one is, and that's a bummed out share. I love share. And by the way, afterwards I found out that the portfolio manager who sold that share was a highly rated portfolio manager who I highly respect. And he just got tired of it because it came down from 40 or 50 rand down to 10 cents and he just needed to clean it out of his portfolio. And I didn't know you were selling because I bought it on the exchange. The other one that I regret, you know, is holding on to Intu, property company in the UK. But we sold it just before it went bankrupt on behalf of our clients. But that was held in our client portfolios. Yeah. It's interesting how professional investors approach winners and losers in their portfolios. How long do you hold on to a winner and how patient are you when a stock is performing poorly? When do you sell it? Yes, generally when it comes to what we identify quality companies, reasonably priced, you know, we also hold on behalf of our clients, hold international stocks. As an example, we bought Microsoft many years ago, Alphabet also. We obviously looked at the fundamentals, you know, the annuity revenue, they, you know, going to cloud and based business and getting recurring revenue. So we generally hold on to that and we do that. However, let's assume, and there has been companies where the facts have changed and we liked it, we invested in it. The facts have changed, it might be underperforming or it might have gone up significantly. And because of fact and the fundamentals are worsening, we would sell out completely if necessary. But it's difficult to determine that. The selling and when to sell is very difficult to determine that. We also take a very long-term view, at least a five-year view. And as I said earlier on, our portfolio turnover for all our client portfolios is less than 10% per annum. So we're not gamblers. We buy a company for the long run. You know, So one of the things we look at is return on invested capital. Is it sustainable? Can they achieve the return on invested capital that they say they can achieve or can it achieve higher or incremental return on invested capital? We look at those numbers and then again say, what is priced in? Is that high growth rates priced in or not? 
And then we take it from there and we generally add to companies which we already hold in the portfolio. We've got a very narrow portfolio of less than 30 so the local South African shares. And in the carve out of our international portfolio, we've got less than 15 shares, a concentrated portfolio. Asif, do you take into account what other professional investors say, their views, because there are many of these guys participating in radio shows and podcasts and they pen columns on websites and newspapers. Do you take note of what their views are? I mean, to look for new ideas and to test how, you know, if you might call it positive views on a specific share, what we tend to do is we tend to look at other portfolio managers and their funds to see what they hold and what they don't hold. And also we look at the arguments against our positions. And we find it's a very good way of checking our investment thesis, you know, whether we're right or wrong. And there have been times where we've changed our view or we might have then researched a specific share and gone into that specific share because, you know, a smart investor that's a bit too early investing in that share and it's at lower price, we would then invest in that specific share, provided the fundamentals stack up and then it shows value in the long run. Asif, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show. That was Asif Mohammed, he's the Chief Investment Officer and the founder of Aon Investment Management. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, Be a Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.